that. And thank you, everyone. It's good to be back uh, on this side of the pulpit. I think this is now the fifth time I've done this, so it's starting to feel a little bit like a summer tradition. And as I was thinking about that, I was wondering why Jerry continues to ask me to come back. And so in reflecting on that, I have three theories that uh, explain this request, I think. The first is I don't think Jerry listens to the summer sermons. (laughs) So he doesn't know if they're good or bad, right? The second theory is, I think, a likely one, if we're honest, that it's good job security for Jerry. If you have an amateur come up here and speak, Jerry and Scott sound that much better, and so Jerry is received warmly when he comes back in July. And my third theory, which is the most charitable, and I usually, those of you who know me, I try not to be overly charitable to Jerry uh, because he's always picking on me, but I do think, especially with his Pentecostal background, that Jerry has so much faith in the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit can work through anybody, even me, and so he boldly asks that. But whether or not that theory is true, that is my prayer this morning, that the Holy Spirit would work through me, flawed as I am. Um, So as I've done this now several times, I was a little quicker to accept the invitation, and I was then immediately asked Jerry, well, what's the series gonna be for the summer? And he was excited to share that there is none, so I could do whatever I want. And at first, that sounds amazing, complete freedom. That's so freeing, it sounds great. But look at how big the Bible is. I mean, literally look at the one right here. It's huge, how do you choose where to start? I started to get this pit in my stomach, like what do you do, how do you begin? And so I thought back to, uh, back to the, my high school days, and I remember there was a, a, a ill-conceived form of Bible study called the plop and drop method. Has anyone heard of that, where you plop the Bible down and drop your finger, and then that's where you focus your reading? Um, I, that didn't sound like a good approach. So I went back to the drawing board, and I thought, no, it would be good. Let's talk about something we haven't heard about much recently. And so today I'm excited to share with you that we are gonna talk about David. (laughs) Now, you're not the first to groan and roll your eyes. When I told my son Sam that I was planning to mention David, he was incredulous. He said, David, didn't Jerry just finish up with that guy? He's like, we're beating a dead horse now, Dad. And I don't disagree, but what I thought instead was what I would share, what I've learned through David. In our faith tradition, testimonies are a big part of learning from each other. And so I thought, especially as I'm not an expert here and don't do this all the time, instead I might share what I've learned in my faith journey as revealed through David. And so it's not really a a sermon on David so much as it is what I've learned about his righteousness that David received through through God. This series was really a, a challenging one for me, and I really appreciate it. David, with his flaws, is so relatable, but he's also uniquely described as a man after God's own heart. And sometimes I think it's difficult to reconcile those two together, and I think this culminated for me in the second to last sermon before Jerry picked up part two of the sabbatical. And we read from 2 Samuel 22, which mirrors Psalm 18, And it came at the end of his life where David wrote that God delights in him. And then he goes on to say, and this this was in the, the scripture for home groups, but not one that we read together. But the next verse after that, after where we stopped, it says, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. 
And I was struck by his, his, you know, first of all, God's delight, but also his mention of clean hands. We read some difficult passages where we learn that David equally had murderous and adulterous hands, yet here he's talking about his own righteousness and his own uh, cleanness. And so it seems to me, though, the key to understanding God's own heart is to understand David's heart there, where he was resting in God's righteousness fully. And understanding that David didn't earn that righteousness. His hands weren't clean on his own. But they were only clean because of the righteousness that he freely received through his faith in God. And with that, let's finally uh, dive into the scripture, which is not from 2 Samuel or Psalms. So I'll give you a break there. It actually comes from Romans 3. So if you could follow along as I read. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are freely justified by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity today to gather with each other, to learn, and to grow. You know more than anyone here that I am an imperfect messenger, but you have given us your perfect message. May we hear your words through your scripture, apply it to our lives, and grow to be more like you. We pray this in your name, amen. So this passage from Romans 3 is hopefully familiar to a lot of you, um, and it's a really popular passage because it succinctly lays out our theology as Christ followers. And today, I wanted to quickly walk through that in a slightly different order than Paul laid it out in Romans, uh, but, but explain kind of the key tenets here, which starts off by explaining that God is perfectly righteous and holy, and he calls us to live with him in that glory. He wants nothing more than communion with us in his holiness. But because of our sin, we choose ourselves over that path, and we fall short of God's glory and his expectations. We fall short of his law as it was laid out. And by that law, by God's law, we are then condemned to live forever apart from God. We saw that first with Adam and Eve who were kicked out of the garden, right? That relationship was torn. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus redeems himself, or redeems us rather, by offering himself as the ultimate sacrifice to make us righteous before God. And by believing in Jesus' saving grace, we have his full righteousness. One of the reasons I chose this passage is that the, you know, the, the, the primary focus of this passages on righteousness, and it actually distinguishes between two types, um, active and passive righteousness. And Martin Luther was the first to me who kind of in his introduction to Galatians who, who kind of laid it out that way. So I want to define what I mean by active and passive righteousness. Active righteousness is when we attempt to become holy through the good things we do. Another way of looking at this would be our adherence to God's law. Passive righteousness, by contrast, is righteousness that is given to us without us doing anything. It has nothing to do with what we do or how hard we try, but we receive it by faith and it is a free gift. In that, those intro comments, Martin Luther 
also likened it to the way, he likened passive righteousness to the way the ground receives the rain. I love that image. The ground doesn't do anything to generate the rain. It can't control it, but it receives it and grows in it. Just as a quick aside, if your grass is anything like mine, this spring, my grass was incredibly righteous. (laughs) My uh, kids get very embarrassed when I brag about my lawn, so I had to throw that in while they were here. But I love the image because the ground absorbs it and soaks in it, and I think it's a great message. I think that's what David lived in. And what Paul teaches us here in Romans is that we can't maintain a good standing with God through our own active righteousness. We've tried and failed at that. Our only hope is to receive this passive righteousness through our faith. And this is literally the gospel, the good news of Jesus. We are no longer bound by the law, but we're free. And so I would encourage you, if you have never taken that first step, today's a great time to explore that and accept this righteousness for a first time. I'd be happy to sit around and explain and talk with, with anyone a little bit more uh, afterward. And I know there are many others who would, who would offer the same. And so that is the good news. And we could stop here and we'd actually be in good shape. We've heard the gospel. We've heard, read from the scriptures. We could set a new short sermon precedent for Jerry. So when he gets back, we could have a 45-minute service. Doesn't that sound amazing? We could get a, thank you, Claude, that was a good amen. We could get a jump start on brunch, so much more room for Sunday activities. But I do want to keep going because I think this uh, scripture and this message has a lot to, for us to learn about our own faith journey, where we go from there. And, um, you know, all of us begin our faith by acknowledging what we read in Romans. We start off there, we know it in our head, we believe it to be true. But as we go along, I think that truth, if you're like me, starts to slip a little bit. To use Martin Luther's terms, we stop resting in that passive righteousness and start trying to build our own again, at least I do. And then you find that disconnect where you read that David was, was righteous but in spite of all these you know, impure things that he had done. So as Christ followers, we should certainly strive to emulate Jesus as we grow. But again, in my case, I found that I too often start to rely on my own righteousness, forgetting that I've already been made righteous, and it's a free gift, I just have to accept it. I think there's a disconnect here between what I know in my head and what I believe in my heart. And I think that's what this passage shows and what I feel like I learned as we went through David, is that I know Romans 3 to be true, but I don't live that way. Um, And I went through a discipleship course called Sonship that really shaped me. And one of the key authors of that program was a pastor named Jack Miller. He's a Presbyterian pastor, um, or was a Presbyterian pastor and a uh, seminary professor. And so I wanted to read um, some words from Jack Miller from that program because I thought it was really impactful to me. And he said it well, so why should I try to say it any, any other way? So if you could follow along on the, on the slide here. Jack said, what is the ground for your walk with God for the rest of your life? Are you saved by faith but continue another way? Although works and good deeds are evidence of faith, the way we continue is the same way we started. It is not as if heaven is a free gift, but the rest of my Christian life is some kind of church purgatory where God is distant and displeased and angry with me always for the rest of my life. To illustrate this slide for me from kind of embracing Christ's righteousness to kind of starting to lean on my own, I thought I would share a story about flying. 
Has anyone flown in the last year uh, recently? Looks like we've got a, a lot. A lot of people are getting back. I was just in the airport this week, and flying is miserable right now. It's terrible. Like every flight, every flight is booked, overbooked, and there are cancellations. So then, when your flight gets canceled, you got to wait like three days to get on the next flight. It's a horrible experience. And to make it even worse, the, the prices are sky high. So we're paying all kinds of money for the misery of flying. Um, but we still do it. And again, we're at record flight levels now, it seems. But one time, I had a truly awesome flight that I wanted to share. And this goes back a little ways. We were going to a family event, my aunt, great aunt's 90th birthday. Um, and to help me get there, my uncle, who had, was flying all the time, he had United's top status, he was flying all around the globe, he gave miles to me to fly. Um, and what I realized at that time was that United would grant the status of the flyer to whoever the passenger was. So little did I know, and by the way, that is a perk that United has since killed, because it was too good to be true and not miserable. And I didn't know this, and I never flew United. We were in Chicago at the time, and I flew Southwest because we were by Midway. So I, had a, I was a nobody to United. And when I went to print out my boarding pass, and by the way, before this is the progressive commercial where you intervene on, uh, on paper boarding passes, this was before the apps. But I looked and I saw that I had his premier status. I was like, whoa, this is awesome. So when I got to the airport, back then, this was before pre-check too, I was able to go through the first class lane while all the rest of the schmoes were, you know, <laughs> all over there waiting in a long, languishing line. When I got to the boarding gate, I was further surprised because I got upgraded to first class. You know how they always do that for the important people? You wait and they get or they call them up and then they get the pleasure of learning that they've been upgraded. Well, again, they were, I was treated like my uncle. This was amazing. I still don't know how United had this gap in their, in their model for so long because they were treating people like me, like my uncle. So I get upgraded, and at first I was feeling almost a little uncomfortable. I'm like, whoa, this is a weird experience. You know who you're, <laughs> who you're inviting to get up to first class? But I went with it, so they call us up. I get on board. You know, I sit down. I'm like, wow, these seats are wide up here. This leather is so supple and soft. <laughs> and you just kind of sink in and it hugs you. And then they offered me alcohol at 5.30 in the morning. <laughs> Planes are the only place where it's acceptable to drink at 5.30 in the morning. And then for like 30 minutes, I watched the parade of the rest of the people come through, right? The crying babies, everyone's bumping. I'm sitting here, you know, really enjoying life, almost feeling guilty as the moms with the pumpkin seats are hitting all the passengers just trying to get through. But I stayed there and I enjoyed it. And I was, you know, I was amazed and I was treated like a king simply because my uncle had flown hundreds of miserable miles on my behalf so that I could enjoy this experience. Now the return trip was a little bit different because now I was onto the game, right? And I'm like, ooh, I can't wait for this flight. So, you know, I checked in early just to make sure, yep, Premier was still on there. I get to the gate and again, at this point, I'm laughing at like, look at those people, who waits in a line like that? I'll go past them, I get on. Um, you know, when they call everyone up, they start the boarding process, which is like 45 minutes before you leave, and everybody stands up and huddles around and waits. You know, I was like checking boarding pass, because I'm like, you look like a zone five guy. What are you, get, get, they haven't called your zone yet, right? I was already relishing in this and felt entitled. But then I get on, I'm like, I thought the seats were a little bit longer. You know, it'd be nice if they had those lay flat seats for this flight. You know, this only goes back like a quarter of the way. 
But I had quickly transferred that amazing gift to something I felt I earned and I deserved. I quickly was thinking I was the one who had flown these hundreds of thousands of miles and should be treated this way. In short, I confused my uncle's status with my own and felt that I had earned it. And on that first leg of the trip, I understood that my status was a gift. I couldn't believe I was treated the way I was, and I almost wanted to go back to being treated like a nobody, because it was what I was used to. But I leaned into it, um, and you know, it started to feel like an entitlement. I, I took pride in that premium status and felt like I deserved it and expected to be treated that way. But I feel like our faith journey can be really similar. Even though that's a funny story, you know, I found my faith journey to be really similar because I start off with a clear understanding what Paul lays out in Romans 3, and that message gets muddled as I go. But what I love about David is that I think he fully understood God's heart because he identified with God and trusted him 100%. And he did lots of good things and lots of bad things, but he didn't let either get in the way. And I actually think the good things and the bad for David drove him closer to his identity in God. When you read from Psalm 18 where he talked about God delighting him in his cleanness, he has this awesome image of his reliance on God. And David didn't get distracted by this other stuff that was happening. And I think that's truly where he understood God's heart and where I always fall short. You know, David understood he was a zone five guy who had been bumped up to first class. And additionally, I think because of that, his actions didn't, you know, destine him to be proud or be shameful. Both of those can be paralyzing. But instead, when our identity is fully in God, it prevents both pride and shame, and it allows God to work through our imperfection. When, in Jerry's uh, sermon last, last month, he did emphasize that point quickly about God's delight in us. And so if you were in a home group and were following the, the, the questions, there were some questions about that. And as a home group, uh, we were, we've got the guys on Thursday morning and we were discussing that. And we were honest that it doesn't really feel like God delights in us all the time, you know, when we were honest about that. That's hard to um, accept sometimes. And I think if you ask yourself this question, what does God think of you right now? And I encourage you to just take a second and, and answer that question. What does God think of you right now? If we're honest, delight probably is not the first thing that comes to our mind. If you're like me, I feel like God's delight in me is lessened because he saw that I was impatient with my kids or that I was critical of the way Abby loaded the dishwasher so the bowls collected the water at the end. Or he could hear my frustration with the overly cautious driver who still hasn't figured out roundabouts in spite of the fact of there being hundreds of them around here. Or just as bad, sometimes I feel like in the moment that God's delight in me has increased because he saw me being hospitable to my neighbor. Or he knew that I had invited our friend's kids to VBS. Or because I stuck with the Lent reading plan the whole way through without missing a day. And so I feel like it goes up or down depending on what I am doing. And I don't think my home group and I are alone. In fact, Paul wrote a letter, a different letter than Romans, to the church in Galatia. And in Galatians, this church was in crisis. They were being torn apart from within, and teachers were telling them that they had to be circumcised to be true Christians. So think of circumcision as an act of righteousness, right? They're relying on a physical thing or a, an action to become righteous. 
And Paul was setting the record straight, saying this is not the gospel. And I wanted to read today uh, from Paul, from Galatians 3, uh, to read with you. But I'd also say, while we don't debate circumcision very much today, we do have tons of issues that are splintering churches every day as we talk about the right way to live out our life or the only way we can truly be Christians is X. And so I wanna read Paul's words from Galatians. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, passive righteousness, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh or active righteousness? Let me read that last question again. After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? I reread this verse almost weekly because I find too often I'm trying to finish through my own act of righteousness. I feel like I started well and I slip. And um, and this was a lesson that I learned through that discipleship program, but it took me 30 years, honestly, to see that pattern in myself where I was relying on my own righteousness. And instead of looking like David, who I feel was uniquely able to, to firmly plant his identity in God, I think I look a little bit more like Peter. And I love Peter, but Peter is, like David, is really flawed. And Peter passionately and boldly pursued Jesus, perhaps more so than any of the other disciples. You know, when Jesus is walking on water, Peter's the first to jump out and try to walk with him. The difference is Peter's relying on his own strength. So he panics, you know, because Peter can't walk on water, and he sinks. His faith wasn't in Jesus at that point. Or later, over supper, Jesus tells him his plans for death and resurrection and how that's God's will. But Peter thinks he's got a better way than Jesus. He's got a better way than God. So when they come to arrest Jesus, he chops the soldier's ear off, right? I love Peter's action, but it's misplaced. He was pursuing Jesus through Peter-powered means. That's a tongue twister, I just realized. I gotta think that one through before the next service. But I do that too, right? I feel I pursue and try to look like Jesus, which is a good thing, but through Andrew-powered or Andrew-centered means. And I think part of what this, you know, and and I guess real quickly, part of the implications of that is we either feel good about ourselves or more than likely down in the dumps because we can't do it. And I think part of what makes this hard is we live in such a performance-oriented society. You know, we're constantly reminded about our value based on what we accomplish or fail to accomplish. I've shared this before, but at work, I can instantly log into Salesforce. Thank you, I know there's Salesforce employees here who drive this misery for me, but I could go right into Salesforce and see my status. I could see how I stack up against everyone. And I either want to screenshot that and send it to my boss to make sure he saw just how good I'm doing, or I want to slink under my desk, you know, join the great resignation and find a different job. But it kind of goes up and down. You know, even our um, even our, our phones can create this illusion of performance. Like, you, you can take a, a picture, I can make dinner, and it looks like, you know, I'm a, a three or a five-star chef, right? They, it creates this illusion that we're living in a catalog. This month, you know, we've got graduates who are graduating and moving on to the next stage of life, and they have crushing pressure to perform. And it's not new. They've been under this pressure for years now, and anxiety is through the roof because of that pressure. You know, there's the pressure to get the best grades so you can get into the best school, and then get the best job, and then be happy with life. That pressure is unrelenting, and it's not from God. And so to our graduating seniors, 
I would say if David were giving the graduation speech, he would say the absolute best thing you can do is plant your identity in Christ and love others. And the rest truly is just minor details. I think we forget about that. We start to feel the pressure of of all of this performance. Brothers and sisters, the message of David is that our value should come from God and from his righteousness alone. He certainly does call us to obedience. This isn't a get out of free jail card to do whatever we want. But through his grace, we start to look more like Jesus. But his delight doesn't rest on what we do for good or for bad. We already have the full righteousness of Jesus, which we freely receive by faith. We do not try to keep earning it and making up each day for our failures. So I've spent the bulk of the time this morning talking about our, our heart condition, but you can see this in our actions. And so uh, our hearts really relay what our, what our, um, you know, our actions sorry, reveal what our hearts are thinking. And so today I want us to think about what would it look like if we did fully rest in God's righteousness like David did? And I think there's three areas of our lives we should look at. The first area is how do we treat ourselves? We're saved by grace, so there isn't any need to add to it or work to prove it. Too often we try to add to Jesus. It becomes Jesus plus whatever. But the gospel is that it's Jesus plus nothing. We have his righteousness, we can't lose it, We don't need to keep trying to earn it. Tim Keller, when he was preaching on Galatians, he quoted an old hymn, and I tried to find the music so we could sing it, but I think it's one of those hymns that's better read than sung, uh, if you know some of those hymns. But I wanted to read the last stanza. I loved it. It said, cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him alone, gloriously complete. I love that image of cast your deadly doing down. This doing can be lots of good things, but they end those good things end up being Jesus plus whatever. And it leads us astray, hence the deadly doing. Just like our grass does nothing to receive the rain, neither do we need to add to it. The second area we should examine if we're living in Jesus' righteousness and not our own is how we treat each other. I think the first thing we can do is start being honest with others. If we know our value comes from the Lord, we don't need to keep up the pretense that we've got it all together. You know, I mentioned our phones can be this facade. Social media is a facade. We keep up these masks trying to make it look like we've got it all together. But I think we should be honest and vulnerable about our feelings, obviously in an appropriate sense. Um, And I think people would feel relief to know that. And instead of maybe as a church being known as hypocrites first and foremost, we might be known as people known for love and those who are vulnerable people who God is working through. Abby and I had the experience to benefit from others' honesty. When we were in Chicago, we had a small group and there was a couple that was kind of like big brothers and sisters to us because they were just one more chapter ahead than us. And they looked like they had it all together. They had great jobs, super smart. Their kids were amazing, great careers. And they were honest uh, about their struggles along the way. And in particular, they had shared a difficult time in their marriage that was really encouraging to us because it gave us hope that, okay, right, look, if they could do it, we can too. And they look like they certainly have their acts together. So I think that honesty can really help and be a gift to others. Secondly, with others, if we're honest, I think we can also be gentle, right? If you look like Jesus, you're much more gentle, certainly, than I look. In my first class story, you know, after my newfound status wore off, 
I began to feel superior to everyone else in the line. As Paul teaches us in Romans, we're hopelessly condemned on our own, and it's only through Jesus that we're made righteous. So how can we look down on others if we are broken and, and uh, apart from, from Jesus, hopeless like everyone else? Jesus tells a powerful parable about a man who owed a crippling debt, and he's forgiven of this debt, and it's free, but he takes this newfound freedom, and he goes and shakes down the guy who owes him like a fraction of what he owed. The man can't pay, and he throws him into jail. And I feel too often, unfortunately, as the church, we look like that. We've been given this freedom, and what do we do? We're not gentle and gracious, as you said in the prayer. Instead, we go and shake people down and look down on others. We cancel people who look different than us. Um, And I don't think that's what we're called to do. I think we're called to love them and point them to Jesus' righteousness. And that leads me to the last point here, which is how we respond at a church, as a church. And again, I, I don't want this idea of passive righteousness to be confused with doing nothing at all. Because we are certainly called to proactively look for ways to share God's love and his gospel, both in word and deed. Or another way that we talk about a lot here at CPC, we're called to build for God's kingdom. So don't confuse passive righteousness with a lack of action. Because God clearly calls us to obedience and action. And in spite of our imperfections, and the Bible teaches largely because of our imperfections, we're drawn that much closer to God. And one of my favorite passages is Hebrews 11. And don't worry, we're, we're landing the plane here. Um, but I do want to read from Hebrews 11 because it's the heroes of faith. It's one of my favorite passages. It talks about the heroes who've come before us and that we can look up to. But a lot of them are flawed, and our friend David shows up here. So we've talked about how, God re- or how David rests in this passive righteousness, but he also had faith-driven action. So let me read from Hebrews 11 quickly here. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign enemies. When we know we have God's power behind us and not our own, we can be bold and courageous. And Jerry's last sermon outside, he encouraged us to be foolish in the faith. And it is foolish that broken and messed up people like us can do good, but we can only do that through God. But he chooses to use us. It's a very clear part of his plan. And so as we embrace the righteousness of God, we should use that to build for God's kingdom. A couple weeks ago, Scott did an awesome job showing what building for the kingdom could look like right here. So that sermon's already been preached. I will point you to it. If you missed it, go and find it. If you listened to it, listen to it again because he gave some great ideas of what we can tangibly do right here. Brothers and sisters in Christ, please hear this. God delights in you because you have received Jesus's righteousness. You've been made perfect forever and nothing can take that away. May we all rest in that truth and live in that truth. And by faith, may we be shaped evermore to look like Jesus and build for his kingdom. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of those who've come before, how their vulnerability gives us courage that maybe you too can work through us. I pray that we would rest 
in your righteousness and yours alone, that we would not confuse what we do as a substitute for what Jesus ultimately did for us. I pray that as we apply that, that our actions would look different, that we would be shaped like you, that we would love you, have our identity first and foremost in you, and that we would love others and share that love with them. Pray all of this in your name, amen.